Welcome to the Gateway Scottsdale audio podcast. Thanks for joining us for this week's message. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through his word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.gatewayscottsdale.tv. Now, let's tune in for this week's message. We are going to continue our Fight for Families series. And if you weren't here last week for our kickoff, I encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast because this series um, is not just something we're sticking in the middle of summer to to kind of make things go by. It's intentional and it's a significant series. So I hope you'll join in and listen um, to that and join in on this series for the next couple weeks because we are talking about fighting for our families. And um, if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Ruth. And we're going to dive right in. And I want to just start by saying, a couple years ago, I was sitting at breakfast with a friend who I just met. And we were just getting to know each other. And we're having kind of our intro, you know me, I know you. And and I I had known that she and her husband were avid runners. They just moved here from New Zealand to the United States. She was a doctor. They were smart. They were fit. They were like goals, okay? So I, I was sitting there just thinking, I need to just let her know this. And I said, listen, I'm not a runner. And she could obviously probably tell that, but she said, oh, well, you will be in her thick, like, New Zealand accent. And I said, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm, I'm not a runner. I, I'm not a runner. I've never been a runner. And she said, oh, you will be. And I can't do a New Zealand accent, but if I could, I would. But, uh, and I, I said, listen, he, I've tried. I would love to be a runner. I think runners are amazing. I get out there. And what happens is before my body gets tired, before my mind is like I'm done, my breathing just gets so labored and it's so heavy and so hard. And I, I, obviously, I'm just not meant to be a runner. And she said in this very thick New Zealand accent, oh, that's just because you're unfit. And I said, what? And she said, your cardiovascular system is just unfit. And I thought, just because you say that in a nice accent does not make it any less painful. Uh, But here she is insulting me, and she said, you're not fit. And the reality was I wasn't. And so I said, okay, big shot, you make me a runner. And so the next couple weeks, she started to train me, train me, and I worked with me, showed me how to run. She slowed me down. Anyway, it was an incredible process because over the next couple weeks, I started to have these weird random thoughts as I was out on my green belt, just like, you know, the, the power walkers are like passing me, but I'm running. And I thought, I, I might be a runner. Like, I, I think I could be a runner. And, and, and I thought, this is great. And so I kept training, and I was getting faster and, and, and getting better. And I thought, you know what runners do? Runners race. I'm going to sign up for a race. And so at that point, mind you, when I talked to her, I had never ran a mile without stopping, okay? But I thought, you know what? I'm now a runner, signed up for a marathon, half marathon, and I had four months to go from one mile to 13 miles. And so I'm out there training and I'm, I'm progressing. I'm sending my husband post-run selfies and he's like, who are you and what have you done with my wife? And it was great. And I was getting so excited and I could see like, I'm, I'm a runner. Like I'm now a runner. I was transforming everything. And then the worst thing happened. I got sick and I couldn't run. And I'm not talking man cold status, okay? I am just saying, I, I actually couldn't run. So I'm laying in bed and I'm thinking, what is this gonna do to my new like running career? 
And I remember a couple weeks later when I finally got out to my first run back, I thought, this is going to be terrible. It's, it's going to be awful. I went out to our green belt that's right beside our house, and I started running, and it was terrible. It was brutal. I'm like slower than I had ever been. I just felt like I had taken 10 steps back, and I was so frustrated. And I thought, ah, maybe, maybe I'm not a runner. Like Maybe I just ran for a couple weeks, but maybe I'm not actually a runner and I just began to have this self-doubt because I saw this race looming before me and I felt so slow and incapable and my breathing was back to heavy and labored and I just felt this sense of maybe maybe I'm not a runner and my shoulders started to slump and I felt this overwhelming sense of like I can't do this and in that exact moment I you cannot plan this stuff guys I'm not making this up I hear footsteps coming behind me and someone's running past me and as they pass me heavy breathing, running hard, running fast, I noticed that this girl, about 20, 25, had not one, but two prosthetic legs. And in that moment, I thought, what am I doing? Like, what excuses do I have to actually not be a runner? If she can run, I can run. And there was a grit and a determination in her eyes that I didn't have. But as I watched her, something stood up on the inside of me and I said, I can do this. I can be a runner, and I started to run, and I remember the day of the marathon, and I completed my goal of the whole half marathon without walking. That was my only goal. It didn't matter if it took me 10 hours. I just didn't want to walk. I saw her that day, and as she passed by me in the marathon, I saw that same determination and grit in her eyes that she was a runner, and she was a fighter. And so our hope for this series and and for today's message is that you would, like me, get that sense that, that fighting for our families is hard. If we get these grand, great ideas that, you know, we're going to be an amazing spouse, we're going to be the most incredible wife or father, grandparent, and we're going to just have this family that's incredible, and we get into it a couple days, a couple weeks, and we are just killing it for a couple weeks, and then we realize the truth that life is hard, right? And we start to have those moments of maybe... I'm not cut out to do this. Maybe I'm not cut out to be the world's greatest mother or the world's greatest parent. Or maybe this this situation I find myself, I didn't ever plan. No one starts out thinking I just want to have a mediocre family or a mediocre marriage or a broken marriage. We don't plan to find ourselves in financial crisis. But sometimes we get there. And the enemy's greatest trick in our families is to bring us from that stance of a fighter into a passive role. We're just letting him come in and do what he, does, he wants to do, which is to steal, kill, and destroy. Not just our families, but far beyond that. He want, he's looking generations down. He doesn't just want you. He doesn't just want God's plan for your life. He wants your children's plan. He wants your ch- grandchildren's plan. He wants to stop the legacy that God's designed for you and for your family. And so the heart today is that you would get that look in your eyes and that determination that you are a fighter. You are one who fights for not only your family, but today we're going to talk about fighting for our legacy. So let's pray. God, I thank you for every family in this room, every person in this room, God. No matter what they're facing in this situation, God, open their eyes, open their hearts to see today that you can and will transform their legacy. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we talk about legacy, and, and there's probably no better story in the Bible that I can think of than the story of Ruth. 
it is, if, you, if you've never read the story, I encourage you to go home and read it. It's four chapters long, so I obviously can't read the entire thing for you today. But what I'm going to do is just give you a flyover view of the whole story, okay? It's going to take just a couple minutes, but I'm going to give you the paraphrase, Noel version of Ruth, and then we'll go from there. Does that sound good? Yes? Are you with me? So the story of Ruth takes place during the judges period of the Hebrew history. And if you don't know that any much about it, it is probably what I would consider the dark ages of Jewish history. It is a very spiritually depressed at time. They're in rebellion. Moses is dead. Joshua is dead. And here they are just finding themselves in this cycle where they are just worshiping false gods. They're doing everything that Moses told them not to do. They're not experiencing God's blessings. Other nations are coming in and destroying them. So God would have to send a judge and the judge would come. He would rescue them. Everything would be great for a couple years and then it would start back over. So they're just in this repeated cycle of just a spiritually depressed dark time. I don't know if you can relate to that, but it, it looks a lot like the culture we live in today. And so in this moment, in this season, we have a family, and Emelik is the father of the family, and there's a famine in Israel, and he's like, I got to take care of my family. So he takes his wife, his two sons, and they head out to find a better place to live. And they land in a place called Moab. And if you don't know Moab, it is known for its pagan, crazy idolatry, rituals that would make your toes curl. It is not a good place. It's not a good environment. It's not a great place to raise your kids, but Emelik and his family settled there. And so while they were there, his sons married two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Orpah, not to be confused with Oprah, which every time I read it, I see Oprah, but it's Orpah, just so you know. And, and so his sons married, and then in a turn of events, Emelik dies, and then 10 years later, both his sons die. So here we have Naomi and his, her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. And she hears that things are looking up in Israel, so she packs up and she says, I got to go back to my homeland. There's probably better chance for me over there. Ladies, you are young. I can't give you any more sons. I have nothing to offer you. I can't take care of you. Go back to your parents. Stay in your parents' homes. Hopefully life can get better for you, but my life's rough. I'm heading back to Israel. And Orpah's like, sweet, I'll go back to my parents. But Ruth has a different attitude. And in fact, she, she says this in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16. She said to Naomi, don't force me to leave you. Don't make me go home because where you go, I go. And where you live, I'll live. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you die, I'll die. And that's where I'll be buried. So help me God. Not even death is going to come between us. When Naomi saw that Ruth had her heart set on going with her, she gave in and the two of them traveled together to Bethlehem. So they get to Bethlehem. They have to discover how these two ladies are going to survive. Ruth says, hey, we need food. I'm going to go see. It's harvest time. Maybe there's someone's fields. I can collect extra grain, and that's how we're going to feed ourselves. So she finds herself in the field of a man named Boaz. He's wealthy man, upstanding citizen. Everybody knows he's a good guy. So she's out there collecting wheat, and it doesn't take long for him to notice her. Maybe she was cute. I'm not exactly sure, but this is the beginning of their love story. In Ruth chapter 2, it says, verse 8, Boaz spoke to Ruth, and he sees her, and he says, Listen, my daughter, from now on, don't go to any other field to glean. Stay right here on this one. Stay close to my young women. Watch where they're harvesting and follow them. And don't worry about a thing. I've given orders to my servants not to harass you. When you get thirsty, feel free to go and drink from the water buckets that the servants have filled. She dropped to her knees, then bowed her face to the ground. How does this happen that you should pick me and treat me so kindly, a foreigner? 
Boaz answered her, I've heard all about you. I've heard about the way you treated your mother-in-law after the death of her husband and how you left your father and mother in the land of your birth and have come to live among a bunch of total strangers. God reward you well for what you've done and with a generous bonus besides from God to whom you've come seeking protection under his wings. She said, oh, sir, such grace and kindness. I don't deserve it. You've touched my heart, treated me like one of your own, and I don't even belong here. You can just see her eyelashes like this is just the beginning. And so she goes home, she tells Naomi about this encounter with Boaz, and Naomi says, oh, and she starts to get her matchmaking plans going. And so she explains to Ruth that what you don't know is that Boaz is actually what is known as a Hebrew kinsman redeemer. And these redeemers were people who, when someone had experienced tragedy and loss in their home like Ruth and Naomi had, they could come in and they were related to them, they could buy their land, they could marry, and they could carry on the family name and make sure that the family fortune wasn't lost. And so Boaz is actually one of the guys in line. And so she says, okay, here what I need you to get all gussied up. I need you to go to Boaz. I need you to tell him, hey, you're one of our family redeemers and, and maybe you'll marry me. And so Ruth does that. She goes to Boaz. It's, it's much more romantic than that, so you can read it later. She goes to Boaz. She, she approaches him, and she says, hey, you're one of our family redeemers. Would you marry me? And he says, he's flattered by it, and he says, okay, well, what you don't know is there's actually one other guy that's more next in line. Like, I'm down the line a little bit, so we need to go to him. We'll talk to him, and we'll work this whole thing out. So the next day, he goes to that man, and he says to him, hey, uh, you heard about Naomi, her family went through that tragic loss, and so her land is available, and you're, you're her redeemer. And the guy's like, sweet, I will take it. And he goes, there's one catch, though. You also have to take Ruth, the Moabite, and marry her. And the guy was like, oh, no, I can't do that. He wanted nothing to do with a Moabite woman. He didn't want to risk his family's inheritance. He didn't want to have her to take care of, and he refused. And so Boaz was like, great, then I'm going to take your rights to do that. And this guy said, fine. Boaz said, sign on the dotted line. The guy handed him his shoe because apparently that's how you sign on the dotted line <laughs> in that time. So he hands him his shoe. The deal is done. In Ruth chapter 4, verse 13, we read, Boaz married Ruth. She became his wife. Boaz slept with her. And by God's gracious gift, she conceived and had a son. And what we, we don't realize is that 10 years she was married to her husband before he died, they never were able to get pregnant. So in this moment, God comes in graciously, and she's able to conceive. And it says, the town women said to Naomi, blessed be God, he didn't leave you without family to carry on your life. May this baby grow up to be famous in Israel. He will make you young again. He'll take care of you in old age. And this daughter-in-law who has brought him into the world and loves you so much, why she's worth more than seven sons. And here's this picture of this legacy literally redeemed because Ruth was standing in the middle of a broken, empty, terrible season. She's lost her husband. She has no child. She has really no plan, and she doesn't know what to do, but she just knows this God that I've met and that I've seen since I've spent time in this family, I want that. And she began to get a vision of something different. And so in that, God is so completely redemptive. He's so faithful. And, and the best part of the story comes um, actually at the end of this uh, chapter in Ruth 4, 16, and we read what this whole story is about. And it says this, Naomi took the baby, held him in her arms, cuddling him, cooing over him. She's finally a grandma, waiting on him hand and foot. The neighborhood woman started calling him Naomi's baby boy, but his real name was Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. Now that just may seem like a simple, innocent sentence, but when we realize the purpose of this entire story comes down to this one sentence, Obed was the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David, as in King David, as in Jesus came from this family line. 
And so we see a complete redemptive picture that a girl, a woman whose destiny was pretty much pain, brokenness, victim, she had every right to lay down and say, this is my lot in life. This is what I got. Instead, she had a fighting spirit on the inside of her and said, no, I want something different. I don't want to stay here. I don't want what I've always had. I want something different. And in that, not only did she transform her legacy, she transformed our legacy because from her came our Messiah. And to me, that's an incredible picture. And if we're going to do the very same thing, because sometimes life is hard. Sometimes we find ourselves in places and our families in places that we didn't expect. A child that's walked away from the faith. Pain and sickness that we didn't plan on. Financial crisis. A a spouse leaving you and abusing you or abandoning you. And you find yourself in this place where it's like, I didn't plan on this. And we can lay down and say, this is our lot in life. Or we can stand up like Ruth did, and say, I'm going to fight for a different legacy. I'm going to fight for something new. And if we're going to do that, there's three things that I believe that she did that we need to do. And the first thing is we have to envision a new legacy. You have to see something different. Any great fighting coach will tell you, you got to see it here before you you see it here. If you're going to have a victory in your boxing match, again, I'm not a fighter. I just want to let you know. But I've seen a lot of fighting movies, and you have to see it here, and they want you to envision it and see it. If you're going to cross that finish line, you have to see it here. Any battle that is won is won here and here before it's ever won out here. And so if we're going to get a picture of a new legacy, if we're going to get a vision so that we can fight, we have to know where to get that picture from. And it's easy to look in a lot of different places, but there's only one place that we can find that vision. We can look If we're not careful, it's really easy to look back, to look back at where we came from, look back at the mistakes that we've made, the sins that we've committed, the places we've got it wrong, the times we weren't faithful to our spouse, or the times that we um, just lost it and missed it with our kids. And we can live by that past, or we can look in the past and see the times where others have failed us, Family members, parents, grandparents, people that you should have been able to trust who weren't trustworthy and they hurt you or they didn't take care of you or they didn't protect you in the way that they thought. We can find ourselves looking back, but the problem is if we're looking back, afraid to repeat it or so determined that we're not going to repeat it, either way, we're just looking back and we don't have a vision of something new. So we can't look back because our past does not define our legacy. And the other place that we can't look is we can't look around us. We look at our modern culture today, it is experientially rich and relationally poor. We are so consumed with getting our kids the very best education, the very best coaches, the most competitive teams. We want our spouses to go on the most elaborate vacations, the most um, amazing birthday parties, the most Instagram-worthy events and moments in our lives, right? And yet family dinners are almost an archaic thing of the past. We don't know how to sit and be present with the people we love. If we look to our modern culture and our society, there is no legacy to be found there. We cannot look around us. We cannot look to our culture to define our legacy. We have to look and let God define our legacy. Ruth had a picture of something different. She said, listen, Naomi, I don't, I don't want this life. You can tell me to stay home all you want, but I'm going with you. I want this God that I've met to be my God. I want your people to be my people. I'm going to die wherever you die. Not even death is going to keep us apart. She had a picture of something different, and she was willing to fight for it. 
Your dysfunction in your family does not define your legacy. It doesn't. I don't care how bad or how broken or how impossible it seems. Your dysfunction does not define your legacy. God defines your legacy. God defines what he wants to do with your family. I love what Tim Kimmel said last week. He said this statement, and I, and I hope you hear it. Strong churches don't build strong families. Strong families build strong churches. God wants to strengthen your family, not just for you, not just for your life, but he does want to bless you. That's his plan. His plans are always to bring good, good about in your life. But he's looking down the road. He's looking down the road generations beyond because God's plan for humanity always is, is carried out through families. When he wanted to send a Messiah, he told Abraham he'd become the father of many nations. And through that line, he brought Jesus. God's plan always involves the family. And so he wants to strengthen your family. He wants to give your family purpose, not just for happiness, although that's a result of it, but he has purpose for your family. And let him define that legacy and let him paint that picture as only he can do. We can't look back at our mistakes or our failures or pain caused by others. We have to let God define our legacy. Habakkuk 2.2 says this, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. If you don't have a vision for your family, go to God, get it from him, write it down, paint it on your walls, put it in your car, but get a picture of where God wants to take your family. What do you want to look like? Write a statement. This is who we are. This is what we're about. I may have experienced this in my past, but this is where we're going. God has a, a legacy for you and for your family that far extends even your own life. Let God define your legacy. And the second thing that we have to do is we have to commit to unity. In any fight, you have to know who your opponent is. If you're unclear about who your opponent is, you will not be able to be offensive in any way. You have to know who your opponent is. When Paul was writing to the church at Ephesus, he was telling them all about how to strengthen their marriages in chapter five and, and parenting in chapter six. And he goes through all this family unit discussion. And then he says something really important. He starts to talk about who the enemy is because it's really easy to get confused about who our enemy is. But in Ephesians six ten, he says this, and here's a final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities and the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. If you are married, let me be clear about this. Your spouse is not your enemy. If you're raising a teenager, let me just let you know, your teenager is not your enemy. Your in-laws, they're not your enemy. The enemy is your enemy. And, the, and, and one of his greatest tactics is for us to be on the opposite sides of the line of the people that we're meant to be holding hands with and fighting against him. I remember when we were first married, Brad was, um, in, a, in another life, wanted to be a lawyer. And so he was really good at these arguments, and he was so persuasive, and I was in speech and debate in college, and I was loving, I loved to debate, but for some reason, every time we'd get together, and we'd, we'd argue about everything, just stupid things that we didn't care about. We'd just pick one side, and he'd pick the other, and we'd just argue, and I always lost every single time because I wasn't as quick on my feet. I didn't, I didn't have the right words in that moment, and he was so good, and I remember going away, and I'd think, oh, I should have said this. I should have said that. Ah, 
And I lost every argument. And so I got better. Like I'd plan out my attack. And I remember the first time that I, I went into an argument and I was so ready to take him down. And I walked away and I knew I had won. And I did a little touchdown dance in my mind and I thought, this is amazing. And then I realized I hadn't actually won. I'd lost. Because the only argument that you and I ever win is the one that we end in unity. It's the only argument we ever win. You can be right or you can be in relationship, but you cannot have both. And so the enemy would love to take your home and take your marriage and to draw a line and to put you on opposite sides and forget all about him. But if we're going to fight for our legacy, we have to realize we have to be on the same side of the line, holding hands in unity and fighting against the real enemy, knowing who our opponent is. In the same way, it works with our kids in our homes. Sometimes we're so concerned with their obedience and their behavior, and we get so caught up in how they, what they do, and if they listen, and if they're doing what we want them to do. And you know, in God's world, relationship is always over everything. His design and his desire for our obedience is only because he wants our heart. He gives us a free will and we have the option to obey, but the, the reason he wants us to obey is because when we choose obedience, we choose him. Does that make sense? We're choosing him. He wants relationship. Obedience is one goal in our home, but relationship's the highest goal. That we would be in unity and our hearts would be connected and that we would know who our opponent is and we would battle. And we're in the middle of raising some teenagers right now. My daughter is 15 and I know it's so easy to get so caught up with, is she doing what I want her to do? Is she making all the decisions that I want? But the, yesterday, as I was getting ready to come to Saturday night service and teach, I opened up my laptop just to kind of go over my notes one more time, and I found this card. And, and somewhere during the day, she had slipped a note in, and it just was a card full of encouragement and words of just uh, to, to say, hey, mom, tonight you're going to kill it. Mom, I think you're amazing. You're qualified. And she started to just encourage me, my daughter encouraging me. And in that moment, it's not to brag on how amazing she is, but I knew I had her heart. Do we have our kids' hearts? Are we so concerned with what they're doing? Obedience is a lesser goal. It's a reflection of the heart. Let's win our family's hearts. Let's win our spouse's hearts. We don't just want a better partner. We don't just want a better roommate. We want our hearts, and that's what God's design for us, for our families is, is to have relationship over everything. Can you imagine what the world would think if they saw a church that was filled with marriages that were so red hot and vibrant that the people knew how to have fun, they knew how to have life and love and sex and friendship, and they walked around unafraid to say, yes, we've been tested through the fire, but here we are standing hand in hand, us against the world, and nothing can stop us. That would be something that would take notice because that's not what they're experiencing. And so God's plan for you and for your spouse and for your marriage and for your home is that you would commit to unity and fight for your legacy. We have to commit to unity. In Genesis eleven six, 6, when the people were all gathered around and, and they were united and they were building the Tower of Babel, God had to come in and literally scatter them and give them different languages because when they were in unity, there was nothing they couldn't do. When you are in unity in your home, you are unstoppable. When you have a clear idea of who your enemy is and it's not them, it's unstoppable. It's an unstoppable force, and that's the way God designed it. 
So if you're going to fight for legacy, we have to be smarter than our opponent, and we have to know who our opponent is. And the third thing that we have to do is we have to surrender to the process. Not surrender to our enemy, but surrender to the process. Any fighter knows this. If he's going to win, there's going to be some things he has to sacrifice. You can imagine Rocky Balboa in the the heat of his training had to pass up some pizza nights right? Couldn't stay out late on Friday. He had to train. He had to get up early and drink the eggs or whatever he did in that movie. I don't know. Getting all my fighting movies mixed up. But there are some times and some things when we're in a battle and we're fighting that we know we don't, we may have the right to do something, but we might have to surrender that right. And so in, in this idea of fighting for our family, fighting for our legacy, there's some things we're going to have to surrender, And you might be sitting here thinking, but I thought Jesus paid it all. I thought we just spent the last nine weeks talking about grace, and he did everything, and I just get to enjoy the benefits of God's grace, and life should be me floating on a cotton candy cloud with people feeding me grapes. I'm sorry to tell you that yes, I'm not sorry to tell you that yes, I'm happy to tell you that yes, Jesus did pay it all. Your salvation is completely secure. Your identity in Christ is totally bought and paid for. You don't have to wrestle. You don't have to fight. You can stand in confidence knowing who you are. Your place and position in God's family is firm and immovable because of what Jesus did. But your purpose must be contended for. Your purpose and God's plan for your life must be contended for. And so if we're going to take that fighting spirit We're going to have to surrender. And what do we have to surrender? The first thing we have to do sometimes is surrender our rights. And that is completely counterculture because our society wants us to um, exercise our rights. They want us to, um, to fight for our rights. They want us to use our rights at every single time. But in God's world, you see that there's times when we have to surrender those rights. In this story of Ruth and Boaz, you watch as both of them at, at different times had to lay down their rights. Ruth could have held that victim card for her entire life and had been the right to be a victim because life was hard for her. She had the right to go home and have a new life and go back to what was comfortable and familiar. Boaz had the right to say, you know, my my fields are my fields. I need to take care of me. I need to look out for my family. I can't be dealing with this Moabite family and their, their situation. But instead, he laid down that right for relationship. In God's kingdom, it is relationship over everything. We see in the same story, we've got Orpah and the other guy who had the right, and both of them said, yep, I'm going to exercise my right. I'm going home. I'm going back to what I know. The other guy said, yeah, I can't, I can't get into this mess. I'm, I can't take responsibility for Ruth. And the funny thing is, both of them, we don't even know that guy's name, number one. We don't know what happened with Orpah's family, but it's, not, it's certainly not connected to bringing the Messiah about. But when we're willing to make those decisions and we're willing to surrender our right to what we think we have the right to, to our pain, to our hurt, to our, sometimes even our happiness. Happiness is a result of being in God's plan. It's not something that we are, have a right to, if that makes sense. Sometimes we have to surrender our rights for what God wants to do in our families and in our legacy. The second thing that we have to surrender is we have to surrender our plans. So much of our lives are spent 
in the day-to-day. We get lost in the, in the trenches of life. And it is so easy to get so caught up in what's happening around us that we can't really see from the outside. If you're in a fight, any good fighting coach is able to step in and say, hey, you may not see this, but here's where he's weak. You may not see this, but you need to throw a punch this way because he has a vantage point that as a fighter we don't have. And so in our relationship with God, he has a vantage point that you and I do not have. Isaiah 55, 8, he says this, My thoughts, God speaking, are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God's vantage point and his plan is the highest perspective. And there are times what we think and we want and how we want it to happen isn't his plan. There's these defining moments that we come to where God says, are you going to trust me? Are you going to surrender your plans to my plan? God told Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. He promised this to him in his old age. And Abraham had to wait decades to see the promise. He had zero children at that time. How is he going to be a father of many nations? Decades later, he has his son Isaac, the promised son. And he's like, I see, God. I see what you're doing now. Now I get it. Here's my promise. And God says, hey, there's one more thing I need you to do. That promise of your son, I need you to take him up the mountain. And I actually need you to sacrifice him on the altar to me. And Abraham's like, what? I mean, God, this is, this is the plan. Like, you'd give me the child. You'd, we'd, we'd, we'd start this whole process of a father of many nations. I need this son. But God, I trust you. So he takes his son heads up the mountain, not knowing what God's plan was in this moment, but knowing God. He lays his son down, and in the final moment, God sends a ram and says, okay, here's the thing. I don't want you to sacrifice your son. I just want to know, will you trust me? Will you trust me to bring this legacy about? Or are you going to try to manufacture it and move it and make the most, you know, strategic decisions? There are times that there is no strategy that we can see, but God has a vantage point that we do not have. Some of us are so concerned with building a financial legacy for our families. And so we're so focused in on work. And yes, the Bible is clear. Leaving a, a, a legacy financially is an amazing thing and it's a wise thing. But the, your legacy of finances will mean nothing without your relationship. In God's kingdom, it's relationship over everything. And there are times where he asks us to surrender our plans. And he's asking, will you trust me? I remember several years back, Brad and I had one of these defining moments. And and I share this not to boast or to brag about us, but to show you a picture of what God can do. And the whole time we've been in ministry here in Arizona, up until this point, we had full-time ministry and he was full-time working through a company, and God was blessing. It was an amazing season. Financially, God was blessing. He was growing in the company. He was learning in the industry, and, and, and there was so much favor there, and we came to this moment where it was super clear that it was time to make a decision. He could continue on that path, but we sensed that he was calling us to lay that down and to pursue ministry completely. It was time to build God's house And on paper, that plan did not make sense. On paper, his company said, oh no, we don't want you to leave. And they tried to roll out the red carpet. They tried to make it as difficult as possible. 
But we knew, and it was so simple, this was a defining moment. Would we trust God? And so we did. And there are a million ways since that moment that I've seen God come in and bless our family and the legacy and our relationship with our children and the love in our home and the time that we've had together and the connection. God has honored his word a million times over. And it wasn't so much did did God want us to give up financial security. That wasn't the decision. Stock options are not our financial security. God is. And so in that moment, I remember a few months back, I was just thinking about it. And God gave me this picture of, of my husband up a mountain in his Isaac moment, like Abraham. And on that altar was the work that was the legacy of what his family knew, the history of hard workers. We know how to work. We know how to provide. But on that altar, he laid it down. And God said, in that moment, your family's legacy changed. And I knew it because I was living it. And so that's not to boast or to brag. It's to say, will you trust him? Will you trust him and surrender your plans? Jesus gave up everything. The Bible says he was at the right hand of the Father. He stepped down. Didn't consider it a thing. Came to earth. Gave his life to fight for legacy. And not just his legacy, but ours. He had to surrender his rights, surrender his plans, and fight for legacy. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me today? The question is, today, will you fight for your legacy? I know there are some of you here who have encountered some things that are painful and hurting and you still are carrying wounds from the legacy that someone else tried to pass down to you. Some of you are still carrying regret and shame for decisions and mistakes that you made that you think have ruined your legacy. There's no hope. And I'm here to tell you today that your dysfunction, your family's dysfunction, does not define its legacy. God does. And there is no dysfunction he cannot redeem. There's nothing he can't redeem today. And so my prayer is that today that something on the inside of you will say, I'm ready to stand up and fight for my family. You might be here today and, and you might be married and it might be time for you to grab hold of your spouse's hand and stop seeing them as the enemy and start committing to unity in your home. It's time to fight for your legacy. Thanks for listening to this week's message. If you'd like to know more about Gateway Church, please visit our website at www.gatewayscottsdale.tv.